Hey everyone, this is John Sinclair. I'm happy to be part of the Greg Bennett Show. If you have any questions for me, Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and I have just concluded a wonderful conversation with Mr. John Sinclair, a world-renowned strength and conditioning coach, somebody that is trained in areas of cognitive behavioral therapy, plus areas like massage and athletic training, and, and obviously a strength and conditioning specialist. And one of the quotes that I loved in here, he said, you know, my job is to engineer another human being's performance. And it really is for him understanding the behavior of this person, what makes them tick as much as it is training them on specific skills. And um, for me personally, that really hit a chord in the sense of understanding why somebody is there to learn and become better and how would they like to be taught. And so we have a really wonderful conversation about how the mind and body operate together and both whether you're starting with the mind and then looking at the body or looking at the body and then how that affects the mind. But it's an area that I thoroughly enjoy and there's so much learnings in this one. I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy the storytelling from John and his background, you know, being a Canadian uh, hockey player and then finding his way into the world of strength and conditioning. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And if you have follow-up questions, John has been absolutely a rock star on the Any Question app. He has over 500 answers there already and all of them are such high quality. Honestly, you could spend as much time on there as you need to just listen to John and his answers to over 500 questions right now. But if you do have follow-up questions from this podcast, as I'm sure many of you will, just go on there, ask him a question. You'll be notified when John answers it. He answers all of these questions. He's very good at getting back to people. So please use the app to follow up with anything that you want to ask John and uh, learn more from John on the app. He really is an outstanding human being and I was very privileged to have him on the show. Until next time, remember... Success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. Today, I am joined by one of the greatest strength and conditioning coaches in the world. He's been coaching and programming athlete development for almost 25 years, and he's experience in coaching athletes through long-term development into college and professional sports allows for unique and creative human engineering and programming strategies for performance and health outcomes. He's been coaching champions in all levels of sport, from amateur to professional and the Olympics, and he has a health and performance performance coaching company called Authentic Health Coaching. And you can go to AuthenticHealthCoaching.com and get all his information there. Uh, It's absolutely fabulous website and you can connect with him there. He's also the co-founder and vice president of health and performance for Seven Movements Health and is the wellness consultant for the Ritz-Carlton Yacht Collection. As the programming director for the Institute of Motion, he educates coaches worldwide and consults with the largest companies in the health, performance, sport, and fitness industries. And finally, his content on the Any Question platform is simply brilliant. I've just learned so much from, from watching his content. Almost 500 answers. I think you're at 499 answers, actually. And all of it is just absolutely fabulous. So it's a, an honor and a privilege to have him join me today. So welcome. And thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, John Sinclair. How are you, mate? I'm great. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, I actually just finished my 500th one right before we got on oh, here. Okay. And it was the, it, it was the, it was the question about what would be my vision if I was the CEO of any question. So oh. I saved that one for number 500. What was it? I haven't had a chance to look at it. What is your vision? If you were the CEO of any question, what was your, what was your answer? Well, I think information is really valuable and when experts share their knowledge, that's great. But I think our, my long-term vision would be is how can we take that and turn it into something practical? Uh-huh. Right. So how do we organize all that information? So in the strength world, it's, it would be, um, I'll look at it through that purview as an example, but we would take the information that we're providing and maybe create programs for people that they could access. Mm-hmm. I love it. I yeah. love it. Well, that's all on the roadmap. Um, we have we have a lot of things on the on the backside that we want to do for for everybody that's you know involved, whether that's webinars or courses. You know, one of the things I got excited about, and I was talking to another strength coach, um, Matt Pendola. I don't know. I think you've met Matt on some of the yeah. the calls, and there's quite a great strength community we've we've built up in any question, and, and you all you all are connecting with each other. And Matt's he's rebooting his podcast on his own. He's probably going to reach out to a number of you to have these conversations. But what we want to build also in any question is that ability to have each of you, if you want to sort of have a webinar or maybe two, three or four of you and ask each other questions that can be recorded live. And then we can also, you know, have that post recording that people can watch as well. But there's something about experts interviewing experts that is very digestible for, for anybody. And as part of my, I think the reason my podcast became reasonably successful is my background as a professional athlete. And I was able to have conversations with other, you know, people like yourself, coaches and athletes and doctors and sports scientists, is there's this common link that you're able to share stories. So that's, that's all in the future. We're looking forward to building all of that out. But honestly, mate, like I said in the intro, it's just fabulous to have you on the platform. You've been one of the driving forces um, and one of the founding experts. And it's been a real pleasure just to get to know you through the app. Um, so thanks for all you've been doing. Oh, thank you. That, that was a wonderful introduction. And thank you for having me on the app. This has been, I, I said right at the onset that I have never been a, a real big fan of social media. And the reason for it is that we don't really use it to share best practices. Mm. And this kind of gives us an opportunity to have an authentic re, uh, response through our own perspective of that question. I think that's what's really valuable. I mm. think, you know, media really does a disservice to practitioners in their kind of genre, in, in their uh, main expertise in that, we're always searching for what's the one best thing for this. And while mm. those are fun sound bites, there's, we lose a lot of context. So I think the ability for, you know, other experts to share best practices and give different perspectives on a question just creates more value for the end user. And I think that's what we're, we've been missing. We're kind of stuck in the days of the, not to pick on this magazine, but like a men's fitness thing where they'll give you the top, Mm. top three things you're going to do for your chest or, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then our, what it does to, for the strength community is that it, it minimizes the effectiveness of what our profession is when we start looking for the best of this and the best of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from Matt or Aaron or myself or Paul or any of the other experts that are on here, while we're in the same profession, we all have very unique experiences within that, right? So mm -hmm. I've done, I think the last time I did the math, I was over 150,000 hours of, 
of personal coaching. And there's no way anyone in the world has had those exact same experiences as I have. Right. And vice versa. And so I think that is an amazing opportunity. If we can share those best practices and learn from one another, I think just elevates our profession. Well said. And, and I just want to nail the one thing early that you said, you know, it's an authentic place. It's a place where, you know, one of the things that was drawn to when I was talking with Ed early on about building this platform was, you know, I never felt comfortable promoting myself on the Instagram and the the Twitter and Facebook and these days TikTok, but it was like, it always felt forced. I always yep. felt like, you know, what am I going to promote today? What product am I promoting? How am I promoting myself? And it always felt forced and never felt comfortable. But the idea of say, hey, you know, somebody's come and asked me a question. You know, the other day I was asked, you know, I think why or how did you start your podcast? It was a very specific kind of question. And it was like, yeah, I pick it up and I can talk about the why and how of I started a podcast, right? And I think there's, I'm just picking up the phone, uh, recording myself as a selfie and talking to the individual that asked, but everybody can hear it. And it's less promotion and salesy and it's just simply me being my authentic self, right? And I think that's, when you guys can show your knowledge, like you said, you're all so different, even though you're under the same umbrella of strength and conditioning, coaching, or however you want to call it, you're all coming from it from a different angle. Um, you know, your background, and we'll get into it, you know, coming from Canada and hockey being the big sport. And I've learned to yeah. say hockey rather than ice hockey. I got reprimanded the other day by a <laughs> professional. I introduced, I don't know if you know the guy, um, do you know Brad Richards? Plays yeah, awesome. of course. Plays awesome. See, I, he's a mate of mine up at the club here. And I, oh, um, amazing. And I'm like, I was introducing him to somebody. I was like, oh, yeah, Brad plays ice hockey. He's like, Greg, we don't say ice. We just say <laughs> hockey. I was like, oh, so I didn't know that. I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> so yeah, what I love about that is like your background is going to be very, very different. And I think we're seeing that with the different personalities on any question. But, um, mate, where are you? Where are you in the world? When we say you're Canada, where are you located at the moment? Well, I'm actually live in Sunrise, Florida now. Oh, so I moved down here nine years ago. Ah, you're yeah. only an hour or so south of me. That's right. That's brilliant, mate. Well, I've been excited about doing this recording with you ever since I think our first conversation when I think you were on one of the, the Strength Channel calls and, and you've just been so wonderful in giving us as a company feedback and advice and creating content, obviously. But let, let's step into this and, and tell me, who are some of the college athletes and professional athletes you've worked with and who have been some of the sports that you've done a lot of your focus on in the last 25 years? Yeah, when I first got into the strength and conditioning world, it was... <laughs> I guess the easiest way to explain it was I needed to feed myself. <laughs> and so I was volunteering at the time. I had just got my, my undergrad degree in physical education and sport performance. And the track that I was on was on in athletic therapy. Mm-hmm. I kind of retired from playing junior hockey at the time. And I was like, well, maybe I should actually, I'm not going to be a pro hockey player. I'm not going to play high level of university at the University of Alberta, which was my dream was to play at the best program in the world. And I never made the team, Mm. but I thought, you know what, I'll maybe I'll make it as the athletic trainer. And so at least then I can be part of the team. I'll have kind of checked the box on what one of my dreams was, (laughs) albeit in a different capacity. And I, you know, got the opportunity to be mentored under uh, Pete Friesen who was, I think he was the strength coach for the Carolina Hurricanes for like 20 years. 
And uh, before that, he was at the University of Alberta where I got my degree. And I got mentored under him and another fellow by the name of Todd Richardson. And um, I became, you know, like the kid that sharpens skates and learns about all the athletic injuries and helps the guys with any of their rehab. And it was really like the second athletic therapist on that team. And you know, I was there to really learn. And then what ended up happening was I, I got an opportunity to work at a physical therapy clinic under another mentor of mine. And his name was Steve Silver. And he was the president of the Canadian Physical Therapy Association at the time. What was cool about that experience was that I got to learn a lot about the sport side of athletic therapy, but also the clinical side of physical therapy. Mm. And what ended up happening was I ended up not having a job at the physical therapy clinic anymore. Steve moved on. And then I was like, well, I was kind of his guy. And I was like, well, they're not really paying me a lot for the amount of time I'm in. Maybe I should start doing some strength and conditioning. And so I started working with kids that I knew at the University of Alberta. Mm. So guys that were still playing hockey that I used to play with. And I kind of got started there. And then I went on to start working uh, in junior hockey as the athletic trainer strap slash strength and conditioning specialist. So I was doing all the injury stuff, the rehab, but also the strength and conditioning. So I kind of had a two part role with this Mm. one team. And it basically led me to um, taking that team to a local gym that was there. And then that uh, the lady that was that owned and operated the gym was like, well, you seem to be here a lot and I don't really want to be operating the gym. Would you operate it for me? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. And so I started doing that. And then uh, we had a coaching change on that hockey team. I think I did it for about a year and a half or two years. And then we had a coaching change on the team. He wanted to bring in his athletic trainer. So I lost my job and I was driving back and forth to this town without any real reason because I wasn't with the hockey team. So I applied for uh, an ad for another gym in Edmonton. Hmm. It was called World Health. And World Health was expanding into Edmonton from Calgary. And so I went in, at, answered this little ad, met uh, one of my very good friends, Jeff Thirsk, who was the general manager at the time. And we became very good friends. I met him for the first time. And I said, hey, I'm I'm a coach. He's like, well, why don't you bring some of your athletes in, hang out? And then eventually when we find, you know, we're going to build out a personal training program, we could hire you. I was like, yeah, sounds great. It's only five minutes from my house. I'll do that. And uh, to make a long story even longer, I spent uh, the next 13 years with World Health developing their personal training program, educating their um, coaches. We developed an entire educational system that had, um, you know, all our levels of credentials were anchored into our pay structures, our bonus structures. Um, I was there for 13 years and it was one of the best experiences that I've, that I've had in this profession because that I was given, um, control to make a lot of mistakes and for Mm -hmm. us to evolve. And I look back now and the leadership that we had there was fantastic. Having had that position, I started to get a little bit of a bit of a reputation in the city, maybe that, um, oh, John's the person you go and and speak to and and he can, you know, answer some of your questions. And then that led us to becoming big sponsors for some of the local sports teams. And so um, I got involved with working with the Edmonton Oilers organization um, during the lockout year when they were um, uh, the NHL had a strike. Mm. And uh, their farm team or their American Hockey League team moved from or was in Toronto. And so I spent the year before kind of working with the guys through my good friend, Chris Davies, one of the athletic therapists with the Oilers still to this day. And uh, so I really kind of got started with 
at the pro level with the Edmonton Oilers organization. And then that kind of spun into some other opportunities. I started working with the Edmonton Rush Professional Lacrosse League mm-hmm. um, and their professional lacrosse team, the Edmonton Rush. And, um, and then that kind of spun into getting to meet, you know, folks all over. So I got to work with some of the athletes for the Canadian National Wheelchair Basketball Team, which was a really cool experience mm. um, because I had never, A, worked in Olympics or Paralympics at that point, and B, you're working with like some of the most amazing athletes on the planet in the as Paralympians and, and just seeing the level of control and expertise that they had with the wheelchair, like just how they made the wheelchair part of their body was just something that was truly remarkable. And so um, that kind of spawned into starting to do more things privately. So working with private hockey, uh, like hockey players in the off season, I got an opportunity to work uh, to move down to South Florida. I got recruited to work at a mid, at a, a company called Midtown Athletic Club. I was recruited as the fitness director there. So my wife and I decided, well, hey, we should, if you're ever going to get an opportunity to move to Florida, this might be it. <laughs> uh, you know, I think this, the winter before it was just horrendous. It was so <laughs> cool. And I was like, do we want to keep doing this? Like, do, you know, things are going really well. Like I had nothing really to complain about. Mm. And, you know, Midtown Athletic Club, you know, recruited me and they really wanted me as part of it. And in fact, it was uh, Scott Hobson, who was on our strength channel that recruited me. Mm. And he recruited a bunch of us from, um, I was working as a faculty for a company called PTA Global, which was an education company. So while I was working in Edmonton, we were building um, a new certification uh, called PTA Global that was started by like 22 of the world's top experts in education in strength and conditioning and personal training. And they built this education platform out and Scott was one of the co-founders of it. He recruited me down there and that opened up a completely different world because mm-hmm. the world of, of professional sports and private uh, sport training down here and even amateur training down here is so much bigger than in Canada. And so that got me into tennis a little bit. Yeah, tennis. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say it's very different sports. Yeah. yeah. Huge, because I'd never played tennis before, and now yeah. I'm working at a tennis facility and helping strength and conditioning for that, and and then you know being in, exposed to so many great tennis players down here and golfers and baseball players, and so I got to start working with some professional baseball players, and so yeah, we expanded from Midtown. I was only there for about two years, and I decided to leave and start my own place with with another fellow down here by the name of Andy Hanley, and he was just leaving his his um, previous gym he was working at and we had a conversation we're like let's start a facility and so we built a cooperative facility for uh, coaches and personal trainers to come to and just run their business out of our facility Ah. and that was kind of like you know the that was really when I started tapping into amateur sport is I didn't have a lot of clients when I left Midtown and I needed a way to kind of get going in the amateur world and uh, Andy was gracious enough to say well you've got a background in athletic therapy. All these kids are always coming in hurt because they're playing one sport all the time. Hmm. Um, Could you help me with my clients? And so what ended up happening was um, I kind of took the role of movement therapy and exercise medicine and and started applying that into our programming of what we were doing for his clients. And then I just started getting referrals from that. And then I built built my business back up again. So I had to kind of start from scratch like four different times in my career. I love, <laughs> so, I love yeah. that. I love that. Thanks for sharing that journey yeah. because it's, I want to go back to almost one of the first things you said and, um, 
and it's, this is just for my own interest, to be honest, when, when, when you kind of had that passion and that mindset that you wanted to have a professional career as a hockey player, was that a hard transition to give that up and focus more on the, you know, athletic training and strength and conditioning side of things? Or was that a, a natural fit for you? And, and then when you did make that transition, so there's two parts to this question, did you feel like that was an area that you did have kind of a, a natural affinity towards? You had some talent? My recollection and memory of it happening was when I got cut in during the tryouts, I was a walk-on, you know, they had open tryouts for the team. Mm-hmm. The was- team at the University of Alberta Golden yep. Bears hockey team. And they were one of the deepest mm, um, teams that you could get. Like, I mean, they were always vying for a national championship. They had, you know, yeah. more national championships than anyone else in, in the world. And they just had incredible amount of depth. And I was playing junior at the time. And I think the first year I got cut from them, it made sense. Like I didn't play all that well. And then I had a good junior year. And then I came back the next uh, summer to try out or late summer, early fall. And, uh, I went out there and I played unreal, like absolutely unreal, the best hockey I'd ever played. And even uh, like some of the guys that were on my team in junior that were also trying out were like, John, I think you're going to, you're going to move on. Mm. And I was like all excited. And I was one of the first cut. And so I sat there in that room when they were cutting me and I'm like, what is this it for me? Like, I just gave you my best and you just like right off the bat, didn't even move me to the next the next step, you know? Mm. And right then in that room, I said, look, it's, it's obvious that you guys aren't going to have me as part of your program, but I really want to be a part of your program. Mm -hmm. Is there a chance that I could come back one year? I'm studying athletic therapy. Is there a chance that I could come back and learn from you guys as coaches and have an opportunity to be an athletic trainer on this? I want to get started. Who do you know right now that is looking for an athletic trainer in hockey anywhere in Alberta? Mm. And uh, the assistant coach, Eric Thurston, says to me, he goes, I think I know someone. I'm going to call them. I'll let them know about you, John. Hopefully you'll hear back. So about two days go by and I get the call from uh, the owner of a junior hockey team. And he says, hey, I got your name from Eric Thurston. We're looking for an athletic therapist. He highly recommended you. Would you want to come in for an interview? And I got that job. And then the year after that, I got the opportunity to be be with the University of Alberta. So I think at the time, uh, Greg, it was tough because I knew I was playing so well that I didn't make that team, but I also had the opportunity to go back to junior hockey knowing that I had taken a big step in my game mm-hmm. and I chose not to. But I was kind of excited about this next opportunity. Yeah. But looking back, I think man, what would have happened if I would have played one or two more years, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I, I left kind of at the top of my game, not at the bottom of my game. I get it. And as we get older, you know, you start to evolve, right? So I was only, geez, I was only probably 19 at that time. So I still had a lot of hockey left in me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you get older and wiser and get used to the pace of the game, you start playing a little better and then other opportunities come. And so I think, you know, that was, you know, mid-1990 when, when that was going on. And uh, so I sometimes look back on it and I think, ah, oh, maybe I should have stuck it out a few years. But to be honest, I wouldn't be where I'm at today had I not made the choices that I am, right? And the thing is with being, I can tell you right now, any professional athlete will tell you and or even college, 
there's a timeline on it. Yes, you might hit fame and fortune. You might make some money and, and you might be able to fulfill. It's almost careful what you wish for. Uh, sure. The amount of athletes that I've seen and, and uh, you know, I mentioned a name earlier in the show and there's people that have really reached the pinnacle of the sport and have had to retire in their mid-30s, maybe late 30s if you're lucky and even early 40s if you're really lucky. But then there's a real emptiness and there's a loss. When you talk about purpose um, as being kind of one of the big drivers for all of us to better ourselves and have that thing, that why that keeps over us. But sport is an interesting one for athletes because they're so purposeful for those limited amount of years that when it's gone, it's amazing the emptiness that they can actually feel. And so as much as I love professional sport, I also understand its shortcomings in terms of what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Yeah. <laughs> it's such a snippet in time. But what I love about you and I just, is you took that competitive mindset, that champion's mindset of turning up and hustling and turning up consistently with intent day after day after day to become one of the world leading, you know, coaches in the world. I mean, that to me and educating others and giving back to others. And it's not a selfish pursuit the way you went from being all about you to giving to others. I mean, that in itself, I think is, is one of the, the great things that you got from all of that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think that's, what's so beautiful about coaching, right? Mm. Is that coaching is, I think it's the greatest profession in the world because there's so many different layers to it. Like mm. we speak about, you know, this is, not just about teaching somebody how to lift weights. This is about how do I engineer a human being's performance? And that takes a lot. But in order to give that, you have to experience it yourself. And I think being an athlete does help you with that. But you also you know, need to acquire a lot of experience in order to help guide people to where they want to get to. And the one thing I would say, even though that, that kind of ended my my hockey pursuit from the highest level of competition that I could have attained uh, based on my abilities. Um, I stayed competitive in sport till I was 37 and I played lots of different sports. So I was also a really good baseball player. I played baseball in the summer times. Um, and then I continued to play. I actually continued to play football after, after hockey. And so we were, I was playing touch football, um, for a lot of years, which was just an absolute amazing sport. Um, that kept me really active in the fall and summer. Um, and then I continued to play hockey afterwards, albeit at a recreational level, but that also opened up opportunities for me to be able to coach hockey. Mm -hmm. And so I had opportunities to coach hockey and to work with bigger organizations like, uh, provincial organizations in Saskatchewan. I had an opportunity to work with, um, the SASCAN development program for hockey and, and it just, I, I was always involved in sport. Like I, I played 14 sports different sports and events in, uh, high school. So I could not get away from it and it became my life. And, and so I think having that element of competition and, and even though I wasn't competing as the, as the athlete anymore, you're right. There's a competition that is involved in even being a, uh, an athletic therapist and, and a strength and conditioning professional that when you're with teams, you are part of that team. Nothing could illustrate that point more than one time in when I was in junior hockey, junior hockey as an athletic therapist, we had a bench clearing brawl and it was full blown coaches fighting coaches and players fighting players. And it was 
absolutely fantastic. And it was one of those, <laughs> one of those experiences where, that galvanizes a team more than anything else. You know, you go to battle and literally go to battle in in a brawl. So, yeah, it was wild. That's awesome. <laughs> you know what? It seems to be. And I have to excuse my ignorance when it comes to hockey. Being an Australian, it's kind of like I'm, I'm learning now, right? I'm a Boston-based company that I'm working with everybody. And every it, hockey is the channel that so many of our team are building and I'm surrounded by meeting people that are either hockey players themselves or whatever. But I, it seems to me it's, it's quite an open game in terms of these brawls are, are almost a common thing, right? I mean, it's like, is it almost what you do? No, it's it's <laughs> not necessarily as common as it used to be in the mm. 70s, 80s, and 90s. That part of the game has really disappeared. It's been kind of frowned upon for some time. But okay. um, the reality is in the game of hockey, it is the fastest sport on the planet that is surrounded by a barrier that encourages body contact and encourages... Uh, forcefully taking somebody off of off of the puck, and you're skating around with a weapon in your hands or something that could be used as your as a weapon, and on your feet, and you got weapons on your feet. Yeah, like <laughs> it's not often that you see somebody drop kick somebody, but yeah. um, and I don't think that's ever happened. But the one thing is that violence does beget violence, and so the assertiveness that, in which the game is played can sometimes manifest into something that's ugly. And of course, there's. Yeah. Something that was been known. I played in a in a really dirty hockey league when I when I reference I was playing junior. I was playing junior B hockey in in Canada in the Capital Junior League, and it was known as a pretty rough league. Like so much so that you had to have a face mask on because the league was tired of dealing with dental bills. So my goodness, yeah. So there was a lot of nasty stuff that happened but in the game of hockey there was there was an unwritten rule or what was called a code of conduct and that code of conduct was listen if if you do anything that is outside uh the rules and you take advantage of another player then you have you have to stand up for yourself right and so somebody if not that player but a different player might come and it's time for you to defend yourself it was just this unwritten rule and it was one way to kind of the players kind of internally would police the pace of the game the tempo of the game so that things wouldn't turn into something really ugly like breaking a stick over somebody's head which i had seen a number of times mm-hmm. in junior hockey so it became one of those things that if you organize the fight it would kind of either set the tempo change the momentum you know it's like uh you had a fresh snowfall, you know, that just kind of covered that muddy field, you know, mm-hmm. and just kind of, all right, everything's back to normal. And, mm-hmm. um, but that part of the game has really changed now. You know, I grew up, uh, rugby was our family sport, you know, my brother played professional rugby and a hooligan game played by gentlemen. Exactly. But I felt like as a young man growing up with my hormone changes and everything else going on that to be in an arena where to hit and push and shove and, and, and really let out some of that innate aggression <laughs> in a controlled place was the best thing for us. And others would say, oh, well, it only, you know, increased you want to fight. And I was like, my mom and dad were all about having us boys on the rugby field to hit and be hit. And I actually think we were better for it. I don't know. I'm, I'm not advocating violence, but I think as a teenage young man, I think being in those arenas to be hit and be hit really taught you a lot about yourself 
and the way you conduct, conduct yourself. 100%. I mean, I was always the smallest person anywhere I went. I don't mm. know if you can tell from videos, but I'm only five foot four. So I was playing junior hockey at 5'4", 145 pounds. Wow. But I'd fight when I had to, and I wouldn't let anybody push me around. And part of that helped develop who I am, I think, as a person, is that if you want to motivate me, you tell me that I can't do something, mm -hmm. right? Or that I'm not big enough, or that there's no way you're going to be able to lift this, or there's no way you're going to be able to take this guy on. And that really did help motivate me. And going back to your part about getting hit, like one of the things that um, Canada tried doing was making the age higher before they introduced body contact. And when we grew up playing the game, like body contact just happened. Mm. Like it was just necessary. Yeah. And I think if you introduce that as part of the game, boys start to learn how to control their aggression because they realize that mm -hmm. getting hit doesn't actually hurt that much. Mm -hmm. Right. Like when you're younger, like you just bounce, right? And when you're older, then yeah, you're coming with a little bit more force and a little bit more speed. So the the difference in the amount of force that you're getting hit with is, is going to change a lot when you're an adolescent versus when you're a little kid. But you've got all those years to learn how to get hit. And mm -hmm. I think that's the one thing about rugby that's so beautiful to watch. And it's one of my favorite sports to watch is, is seeing these guys that they can have instantaneous bits of aggression when they need to tackle and then get up and swat, swat the other guy in the butt after they've been, yeah. you know, whacked really hard. You know? and yeah. So yeah. they are amazing at knowing how to tackle without getting themselves hurt. Mm -hmm. And the amount of force that they're doing that at is absolutely remarkable. And I wish American football could learn to tackle like rugby does. Oh, wouldn't it be great if they could it even just be. put their heads in the right position? The amount of times, hundred percent. Like, I or love the NFL. A body across oh. the person instead of off to the side it's or amazing. straight on. Like, yeah, yeah. Like in rugby, we learn from a young age where to put your head and where to put your arms and how to tackle, and 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 you just it becomes in your DNA. You just start to know how to tackle somebody. And I watch the American football, which I love, by the way. I do enjoy it. But these head-to-head -head contacts and the way that they just throw their bodies into the air and hope to, and the guy just has to sidestep them and run around them. It's like, well, you never, you never went around his legs. That's right. You know, <laughs> you've got to take down a tall tree. You've got to remove his legs. I've grown up in that kind of a, an oi all boy world where we love the, these physical contact sports. I ended up becoming a professional triathlete, which is about as far removed from that, <laughs> except for maybe the swim start as you can get. But, you know, you've grown up with that. When we look at your coaching sort of style, your philosophy, how would you describe that now? How would you describe your, the way that you coach these days? Yeah, it really evolved over the 25 years. I think I was probably like most people where they you know, whatever you learned in school, that's what you were going to apply because that's what you were confident in because an authority gave you that information mm -hmm. to run with, right? So you're like, well, it can't be wrong. I learned it in university. And then over the years of having amazing mentors and, and following educators, I mean, World Health was, was really great. They would send me off to conferences and I would go and learn from really wonderful people and people who shaped this industry really and, and come back and, and, you know, kind of create smaller versions of what they were doing because it was really intense and it was really high level stuff. So I had to try to keep it a little bit more simple for people and then for our coaches and then and start to expand on it so that we could meet those coaches where they need to be met. So they weren't drinking, you know, learning by drinking through a fire hose. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the thing that helped me evolve was in in just having real good mentors around me 
and getting involved in the world of education. And so going to conferences and that kind of got things started for me. And I started to really get a taste for teaching and educating and helping coaches that, you know, I could, you know, coach athletes and coach folks that were in pain or coach folks that just wanted to get in better shape. But I started to find that I was getting a real taste for the education part. And I'd get a rush from from being at a conference and presenting at a conference or, Mm -hmm. or putting on an eight hour workshop. Like, I can't believe I used to put on eight hour workshops like every weekend. (laughs) How exhausting what it was like to be young again, but I think I might die if I do that now, but (laughs) you know, getting around these mentors and, and one of the things that really changed a big part of my philosophy was like, you know, like when you, you think you need to change, but you need some kind of like some insurance and some, and some, ways in which other people that have been there before mm. are saying, yeah, you know, you're think you're thinking on the right lines. I, I give you permission to make that change. I was looking for that. And it happened when I started to become, um, I was actually thinking of leaving the industry. At one point I was so burnt out from coaching. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I'd just be better at oil field sales, like <laughs> something different. Cause I was getting so tired of it. Mm. And I remember a conversation I had with my wife and she was like, well, what do you really want to be doing? And I was like, I'd love to spend more time doing more education. She goes, well, who do you know in the industry that could help them? And I was like, you know, and I'm going to contact Richard Boyd. Uh, do you know Richard? He's a fellow Australian. I don't uh, know Richard. I'm sure you guys know everybody in Australia. Yeah, it sounds Australia, like I should though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Richard started a company called PT on the net. Mm. And it was a really cool resource for personal training and education. And you could type anything into the search engine and articles would come up from Paul Check and from um, Michelle Delcourt and, and all these great people that were in the industry that were just teaching lots of cool stuff. And Gary Gray was another one. I was like, oh man, I got to learn from these guys. And so I had been doing that for a while and I reached out to Richard and I said, hey Richard, I'd love to be involved more on PT on the net. You know, I need something to kind of kick kickstart my belief and and my passion for coaching again he's like well i just sold pt on the net i was like oh right he goes but sinner that was my nickname he goes but sinner i've uh i started a new company called pta global and it's going to be i'm going to take all some of the top people that have contributed to pt on the net and create a certification for the industry and it's going to have a huge behavioral focus to it Mm -hmm. and that was what i was looking for Mm -hmm. because i was getting tired of the whole it's just about strength and it's just about power and it's just about a cardio and it's just about blah, 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 blah. And you can get all this. But I was seeing a massive problem with the fact that us nerds in the industry, so us coaches, we live and breathe this stuff, but the people we're helping don't, right? And so I was like, well, what is it that makes them not be as passionate about this as we are? Like athletes are, are the easiest people to train because they're so passionate about their sport and they want to get better but how do I get those people that don't value this the way I value it? Mm. And how do I coach them at a different level? And so that took on learning more about psychology and behavior and, Mm -hmm. and how to use, um, you know, a cognitive behavioral therapy and, Mm -hmm. and learning all this. And so they created an actual certification based on it. And I was like, okay, I'm in, I want to teach for you. And he goes, well, you got to come to all our mentorships. No problem paid a boatload of money to go to all their mentorships, do their teaching school. And I became one of the first four faculty in uh, North America for PTA Global. I love that. And that changed the way I 
coach and my philosophies now has been that. Oh, I love that. That's so, and so cool. that was really looking at things from a different perspective, which is, okay, psychology governs everything. And mm-hmm. that's my belief now that psychology governs anything and the physiological is layered underneath the psychological. Mm. And so that really helped me frame everything that I was going to do, not only from personal training, but also from strength and conditioning. And then it kind of evolved into this idea of once I started working with more and more youth athletes in an environment where they only play sport one or play one sport a year, year round, then it opened up my eyes to all the problems that were happening with single sport athletes and how they're doing too much too soon, too often. Mm -hmm. That made me have to think differently about how we were going to engineer their performance over a long period of time because they're not getting it at school. They're not getting in physical education. They're not getting it from the motor skills that they would get in those environments because they're only playing one sport. Like you take me out and we want to play a game. I'll be able to play it because I played everything and all my day was consumed with was play. Mm -hmm. So my motor skill system is fairly robust. Whereas you take some kids. Now I have parents will bring me a 10 year old, if you can believe it. Right and a 10-year-old tennis player, they can whack the heck out of a ball, but they can't catch it, (laughs) right? And Mm -hmm. so I'm like, this motor system is not in sync with how motor skills are developed. You should be able to catch a ball before you hit a ball. Mm. And so that gave me this concept of long-term athletic development, sport engineering, and when strength kind of fits into that. As, As you know, we're labeled in the strength channel, that's only one of the qualities that we help athletes mm-hmm. get. There's a lot of qualities that are required in uh, engineering somebody's performance. So that's kind of how it evolved over a period of time was moving a little bit further away from the exercise science into psychology and then blending them together into a movement practice. And now I do exercise therapy I do medical exercise therapy, and but they're all still under the umbrella of behavior change. Mm. Oh, that's, that's such a great answer, by the way. And there's a lot to unpack about that, but you've hit a lot of chords that really, as as an athlete, the areas that, and a bit like you, you go through stages of burnout as an athlete. I mean, especially swim, bike, and running for almost 30 years as a profession, you kind of and, and then as I stepped away and looked at it and, and, and actually probably the last 10 years of my career really started focusing more on the, you know, the CBT training and the, the, the way that the, my brain can affect my physiology, right? And mm. I've had Dr. Tommy Wood on the podcast numerous times and I'd love to connect you guys. I think you'd, you know, he's a, probably one of the most brilliant men I know. Um, and he's actually on Any Question app. We've got to get him to start answering a few more questions, but he's come on my podcast about three or four times. But he left with me with one quote that I use all the time and it's like, you know, what you think has a direct impact on your physiology, right? And it's, it's, it's very simple. It's an easy quote. And we all talk about visualizing and negative thoughts and positive thoughts and, and all these things, but they have the science and he, he's always research, you know, giving me different research papers that the science has just proven how this works. And going between cognitive behavior or cognitive function 
training the brain, then the impact of that on the on the physical body and training the physical body and the impact of that on the brain. We just did a we did an episode just this last week actually that just came out and it was all about that. And it's almost getting to the point if you want to be in, in nutrition or dietitian, you better understand psychology. If you want to be in anything to do with movement and like you, I love how you put it, engineering performance. I think that's fantastic. Engineering performance. You need to understand how brain function works and how people learn and how that brain can affect performance. So have you been, you know, with that, have you been continually experimenting with ways to help improve that for people, like whether it be visualizing or affirmations or, or how people think? In my undergrad, I had a professor of our sports psychology. His name is Dr. John Hogg. He wrote a book called Mental Skills for Swim Coaches. Mm-hmm. And he was the Canadian national swim team. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was doing my massage therapy certificates under the swim team's massage therapist. I came up with this idea of, hey, how cool would it be if we were able to teach massage therapists these mental skills that you're teaching us? That's awesome. So that you can incorporate mental skills with massage at the same time. So you would blend, you know, afflerage with relaxation mental skills, right? So you're giving suggestions or things that the athlete might be thinking about during a relaxation. Oh, that's brilliant. Heart massage, right? Mm -hmm. Versus Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you imagery during a time where I'm doing a pre-event massage, Mm. right? So I'm, you know, doing more petrissage and I'm jostling and trying to get you fired up and stimulate the sympathetic nervous system at the same time I'm giving you imagery skills. So that was like my little idea. And then he took the idea and gave it to like his master's student. I never, I was like, I'm a lowly undergrad. Like, why'd you give him my idea? Mm. Anyways, it it made me think differently about mental skills at that point in time when I had that idea. And I've been carrying that through my coaching for quite some time. And I always start with the first step that's in his book and that's self-awareness. I think that's the first mental skill any athlete should really start to work on, especially as a kid, because you know, from the time you start to figure out what your identity is in terms of who am I, what, what things are important to me, do I have my own values? Are they different from my parents? There's a massive change that happens there, even into young adulthood, right? Mm -hmm. And as we evolve as an athlete, you get more and more experiences, which may change your interpretation of who I am and is what I think thought I was really how I behave on the court field or pitch, right? Mm -hmm. What we started looking at and what I started to examine was this idea of why are we coaching everybody to do the exact same thing from a motor skill perspective when that may or may not identify with who they are as a player, Mm -hmm. right? And so to give you an example, like If you want to become a better skater, you go to a power skating class, but that power skating instructor is teaching you one way to skate, and that might not be your style of skating. Mm -hmm. I was conflicted with this idea of motor skill education and coaching where we're teaching one style of doing something, but we do know that motor skills are best enhanced when we leave kids to just figure it out on their own. Mm, Free play, free play. Free play, Mm -hmm. right? And so you learn how to run, you learn how to, Mm -hmm. you know, in our case in Canada, you learn how to skate, being out on the pond or out on the outdoor rink, just 
playing around and then that becomes your style and you, you make yourself more proficient at it, but you have a style of play, Mm. right? And that usually coincides with the tactics and the strategies that you learn within your style of play and what makes you a good player. And then great teams are made up of a a variety. You hear me talk about variability all the time on on the app because I think that's Mm -hmm. probably the most important thing we can teach for people is that this idea of if I'm going to build a good team, I need a variety of different skill sets and different thinkers on that team in order to be successful. We might have the same mantra and we might have the same goals, but what makes you a successful individual is that we are customizing a movement experience that matches not only your motor skill capability, but also how do you perceive yourself when you're doing these things? Mm. Because if I can perceive myself, then now I can tap into a layer of motor skill that's different because games are played by accomplishing a task, not by how I do the task, but we coach people on how they do the task, not can you get the task done more efficiently and more economically. And that's where my, the conflict started for me was listening to kids coming back from a batting practice saying, well, I'm changing my swing. I'm like, wait a minute, how many swings have you done in your lifetime at this point? And they're like, I don't know, thousands. I'm like, you know how hard it is to change your swing now? <laughs> right? Like, is it going to help you hit the ball better? Mm-hmm. And they go, well, I'll probably hit it. I might hit it harder. I'm like, well, what difference does it make if you're going to hit it right to the other player? Mm-hmm. The task of the game is to hit the ball where they're not. So the more I change, get you to try to hit it in a certain way, the more you now have to change and you're now starting to think about the technique instead of the outcome. And that's not how we play sport. Gee, that's, this is music. I've got all these bunch of notes, the things I want to talk to you about, and I've just totally gotten rid of it because honestly, (laughs) listening to you speak, is just really resonating with me. And I had a career where I swam a certain way, wide left arm, lifted my head, you know, I learned to swim in the, the ocean, in the surf. I never learned to swim in the pool. I never went to a pool until I was probably about 20. Every swim coach in the world would always try and change my stroke. It's not efficient enough. It's not efficient enough. And I'd work on it for a little bit, you know, while I was with that coach for a little, you know, a few sessions. And then I'd just go back to the, what I had learned, right? And it was like the, the free play that I'd learned by swimming in the ocean and catching waves. And it was the way I, and the only way I became better swimmer was actually by just watching the greatest open water swimmers in the world and then visualizing them as I was doing my activity. So I was playing, right. but I could see Kai Hurst, who's been on the show and others in my head and my body position would be stronger. And I get strong and fit in that position, because I was excited to do it. But if you had me doing drills all day and trying to upskill my, and I'm talking about, I'm in my twenties and early thirties now, I'm not going back. I've done tens of thousands of hours of swimming. I just wanted to let me play and let me go. And it worked for me, right? It worked for me. I was a front pack swimmer and it worked. Every time I tried to go back to what a swimming coach would suggest, I was focused on that and I couldn't even get my breathing right. And I could be buggered by the time I get to the 50 minutes. I'm not saying people when they're young, not get some great upskilled coaching, but it's almost like once you've got tens of thousands of hours in you, it becomes very difficult to go retrain that. I mean, the question I would ask you is that, did you get faster, right? Because if you're in a race, if you're, if your times are better and your splits are better getting out of that water and you had more energy and it had a, a good transfer to the bike, then that would be the thing that we measure it against, right? Yeah. So I'm always measuring things based on, well, did I, 
am I faster or am I slower? If I have to give you, if I have to give you, if we're in a race sport, right? So if I have to give you something that actually slows you down, how much time and effort is it going to have to take me as the coach? And is that risk reward ratio Hmm. appropriate for this individual? Exactly. Right? So that's the thing that we always have to evaluate. For me, I always looked back and uh, mine became fairly simplistic in the sense that my swimming improved when my running fitness really went through the roof, right? Heart and lungs don't really know any difference. They start shunting blood to the right places. And, you know, I get my running to be really on point. And then I could basically, I could sprint for 1500 meters without getting tired. That was always the goal, just not slowing down. You know, I don't have to be the fastest 50 or 100 meters swimmer. I just have to be the one that holds on to it longer. Same with running. I don't have to be the fastest 1K runner. I just have to back to back 10 of them. Um, and so it became about conditioning. But in saying all of that, I think what I'm enjoying listening to you is understanding first and foremost, free play. I love that, that, that kids for sure should be out there and just learning everything they can just through play. Um, monitoring the amount of skill set coaching we give them and giving them micro doses of that throughout their sort of growth cycles, if you think in their, their early teens and, and late teens. Variety of sport, I think, is, is fantastic. And understanding the impact of having fun while you're doing it, understanding the mental side um, and how that can impact your physical side. Yeah, I think those are you know, some massive bullet points that I think we as coaches really need to anchor to. I think we get caught in the minutia of, you know, did your, is your bench press better? Is your squat better? Did you, you know, is your power clean better? I mean, those are all things that are measurable, but to me don't play as big of an impact as can I make you more efficient and effective first and foremost? Can I do it in a way that I'm not interfering with that development from happening? Sometimes we as coaches, we tend to talk too much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I've been asked by parents, why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you changing this or changing that? I'm like, I, the cue that I give is going to matter to them when I do speak. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I keep talking nonstop mm-hmm. and telling them what they're doing, they don't know what the sartorius muscle is or what the... <laughs> the function of the hmm. abductor pollicis longus is like that. I would never talk like that. But if I start talking muscles, these kids aren't going to know what they're talking about and you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So the, the most important thing is, um, are they moving with good rhythm and timing coordination and symmetry? And they're doing it in a style that makes them look like, Hey, I got that actually felt really easy for me. Hmm. Great. Then you did it right. And doing it in a way that I'm telling you, for me, it was always had to be fun right? And I had to, it had to add to my passion to what I was doing, not detract from it. And, you know, my wife and I were both very different athletes. We both got to world number one for a while. We both went to Olympics and all that kind of thing. But the way she learned was very different to me. But, you know, we talk about and how much fun she always had with her swim club growing up more than her high school friends. It was the club and the coaching and the environment they created was a place where the kids wanted to be. And so she wanted to go swimming and she was passionate about swimming because of the, the environment the coach created. And, you know, for me, the sport was always just fun hanging out with my mates. Yes, I was competitive and I, I loved to push myself and test myself. I remember having a coach by the name of Brett Sutton and he's known in our sport as being one of the real tough coaches. He's got a bunch of world champions and everything. But the work I did with him for four years was really brutal and I was pretty burnt out by the end of it. And so I moved to Victoria, Canada 
up up your neck of the woods almost. Yeah. And uh, move with the squad there with uh, Coach Lance Watson and, and Simon Whitfield, who was my good mate, who invited me up. And and suddenly I remember being in a in a workout and everybody was laughing between sets and having a good time. And I hadn't had that kind of a laugh or a good time for four years for me to be in work. Wow. And I was like, ah, this is what I've been missing. That's the magic dose. I grew up with that as a teenager in my early 20s. It was always fun and laughter. And then I got really serious for four years because now I was a professional athlete. And I was like, huh. And then my performances really started to go through the roof. That was a big transition for me of going, go back to why you're doing it. And is it fun? And is the environment adding to that passion or is it detracting from that passion? So I really feel like you're somebody that gets that and that's huge. That's huge for anybody. Did you second guess yourself while you're in the pool and everyone's like, some people would call that like goofing off. Like, did you go like, are these guys even serious? Like, what are they doing here? Or did it immediately connect with you? I think there was two parts to it. One, I felt empowered because I was the serious athlete in the, you know, I was kind of like the, the slightly older and I was the more mature and I'd, I had a few results on the board and I thought I took a little bit of, and, and this is a bit of arrogance, I guess. I took it as like, okay, well, they're laughing and goofing off and having fun. But then I realized, hang on, I'm being too uptight and too serious and I'm not enjoying what I, I was about to retire. And I was like, well, hang on, you're trying to go this macho man, terrible way of putting him back in the 70s, aren't I? Macho man type mentality, but to going, hey, why can't you have fun? And so for me, it was a process of, of, of swapping that over and embracing that culture more and having it come into me. And then, yeah, don't get me wrong, I still brought the hard work mental, mentality, but it was uh, nice to be able to just laugh and have a, yeah. a more relaxed environment. And all of a sudden, almost like that sympathetic nervous system had been on all the time sure. and the parasympathetic was able to kick in. And then I found that nicer balance and I was able to perform at a higher level. So yeah. Well, it, it shows you how environment dictates behavior, oh, right? Huge, huge. And then, so if we don't cultivate the environment and cultivate the culture that matches that person's, you know, values, then mm-hmm. we're going to have a challenge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's going to be people that we run into that are very serious, very driven. This is how I want to do things. It needs to be very analytical. And I mean, we got to cultivate that environment for that person. Of right? course. I think, you know, we've discussed on this show with numerous people, you know, is data a good thing? How much data should people be collecting? Especially endurance yeah. sports, everybody's got some kind of data measuring tool. They're, they're measuring sleep, they're measuring food, they're measuring power on the bike, they're measuring pace and distance. And and for some, if you're an engineer type mindset, having all of that data really works for you. For someone like me, who tends to be driven more with passion and emotion, and I look at it as a negative. I don't need to be told I had a bad night's sleep. I, yeah. I, I don't need that reinforcement. I like to just, you know, and so, yes, understanding who you're working with, fantastic. Hey, mate, I want to, um, I want to wrap up the show with uh, asking you a few final questions, if I may. And this is one of my favorite questions because, you know, we, we kind of touched on it earlier, but, you know, what, what would you tell your 18-year-old self back then when you were trying to be a pro hockey player? I'm fascinated on this one. Jesus, such a tough question because I, I don't know if I look back too much and ask <laughs> what would have I done different or make sure you do this instead of this. But I think the first thing I, I probably would say is just live in the moment. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is like I, I would tend to try to get too far ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. But a really good piece of advice I ever I, I got was doors are going to open for you. 
you just have to make sure that you're ready and willing to walk through them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and so do that. Don't think about it too much because there's another door with a completely different experience on the other side of that door that you're going to walk into mm-hmm. and be excited about that opportunity. And I think I've always done that. Like doors have opened. I've walked through, I've, you know, I didn't have to kick down a door. A door was open for me and I made the best of it. And I was able to do that and cultivate a pretty good career out of, you know, creating my own jobs for myself. Mm-hmm. I was, I never applied for a job that I got. I created those jobs. And so that was pretty cool experience. So I would say, yeah, doors are going to open, be ready and willing to walk through them. What a great, I love that. <laughs> I was brought up, you know, as basically say yes to every opportunity and not yeah. necessarily every opportunity, but you get it. Like be, be prepared, be ready, be listening, be aware of opportunities, I think is almost it and be ready to walk through them. That's really yeah. cool. I mean, that's how I, I got the Ritz Carlton wellness thing. Yeah. Uh, becoming the consultant for that organization was just, Hey, this is what I think you guys could do to actually build a really cool experience on your yachts. That's and they're awesome. like, Let's do it. <laughs> I know? hope they're kicking in some uh, trips for you on those yachts. Do you get to go on those yachts? Yeah, we'll be uh, traveling here this uh, in 2023 or 2024. Okay, next question. Who would you want to have a dinner with? Um, let's pick three people if you can think of three. Non-family and they can be living or dead. Okay, uh, well, first one without a doubt would be Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I mean, he's always been my hero. Well, so. you wouldn't be Canadian if you didn't pick Wayne Gretzky. Right? <laughs> I mean... You look around my house, everything has something to do with, with Wayne. So mm-hmm. uh, he, I, we, I was just at the hockey game the other night and he was there and I almost went into like absolute shock because I was like, wait a minute, I can see him mm-hmm. and I'm now starting to tremble because mm-hmm. like that's my heroes just within a baseball mm-hmm. throw away and like how do I not go tackle him? And I think if I ever got put in front of him, I'd be like, would you be my dad? Because <laughs> he was like, my idol growing up, right? <laughs> so that would be one. And then, ooh, I'd probably pick a musician for mm-hmm. sure. Maybe someone like John Bonham, mm. legendary drummer for Led Zeppelin, just to, to see how successful he got at such a young age um, and how it was just, drums were just a part of him. Mm. And then um, probably Marilyn Monroe. That would just be, I mean, what would be better than sitting across the room from that beautiful lady and learning about all the stories of that went on in her life? And what really happened, right? <laughs> what really happened, yeah. Wow, I love that three, mate. And I, I think the first two, we got to see if we can get on the app and create this community where you're actually just rubbing shoulders with these guys. Um, yeah, that's amazing. So just started, I just brought on... Um, good friend of mine, Bill Gerber. He's one of Hollywood's biggest movie producers and, uh, you know, he's good friends with Clint Eastwood and Arnie and everybody else. But he was also in the music industry throughout the 80s and was the manager for bands like The Cars and and many others. So I feel like we're kind of almost one degree away from... That's right. <laughs> From John Bonham. And, amazing uh, stories. So uh, I, I love those three, mate. Um, I'm happy to be the guy that waits on the table there. <laughs> okay, final question here is um, where, where do you see yourself in, in three years from now? Ooh, well, hopefully um, our dream is to spend our summers in Saskatchewan mm-hmm. in Canada. So our goal is to, you know, have the the flexibility to live in Florida for nine months out of the year and 
three months in back in Canada so I can reconnect with family. So awesome. in the next three years, our goal is really to evolve my business so that I can be a remote worker, mm-hmm. right? So somebody who can coach from in a variety of different ways. Um, so that'd be the, the big thing. I have a company called Seven Movements. So we're kind of mm-hmm. organizing that company to get to the point where we're we're doing a lot of research for disease states and we want to build that company up and eventually um hopefully be able to sell that technology and that and that company to uh release it to the rest of the world so it, three years will probably be too soon for that but it's one of our big dreams is to change our our philosophy on on microdosing movement and try to drive that into the into the world so that people can access information and, and help um, deliver movement to people in disease states and people in chronic pain and things like that and hmm. give them access to things that they can start to use to create self-care so they don't have to rely on the medical systems. Wow. So that's kind of our big, my big dream. And it's three years, it won't be ready by then, but uh, we're building the technology for it right now. And we're doing research with UBC, uh, University of British Columbia, McMaster University for cancer at the moment with uh, some of the protocols that I wrote. So um, hopefully moving into diabetes and Parkinson's disease are our next two programs that, that I'm building out. Wow. And so yeah. when you say microdosing movements, yeah. it's, it's kind of helping people that are... Uh, you know, obviously in a state where doing movement is a challenge and you're trying to find new... You got it. Like only about 20... Per- the fitness industry really only kind of helps or, or attracts and people who are already fit, mm. right? But we don't really have many things for the people that don't have access. And I don't mean like the ability to go do it. They just don't have the information and the, the infrastructure that we build is not for people that can't exercise Mm. or need smaller doses of it so we built this concept like 13 years ago about how could i deliver a smaller dose of exercise more frequently throughout the day to help people that would have special considerations or um or risks or um things that they can't get access to because when you go to a gym you're going to be handed the same thing everybody else does so Mm -hmm how can we reach those people so that we can actually make a dramatic impact on some of the world's biggest diseases that could be affected from exercise. So that's, that's kind of like our mission and where we want to go with it. Wow. Where can people find out more about that now? Uh, that one's at sevenmovements.com, www.sevenmovements.com, like all. Okay. S-E-V-E-N. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes, but it's, um, it takes me back, you know, when you think of these microdosing movement, the amount of research that's coming out and, you know, if you can move every hour for five yes. minutes or whatever is better than yeah. doing sort of one hour straight in the morning. But if you can do that, <laughs> move just a little bit throughout the day. How, how yeah, the our partners at the UBC, uh, Dr. Jonathan Little and uh, at McMaster University, Dr. Martin Gabala, they're, the, they're partners with us and they're like the two of the most world leaders in this type of uh, Mm -hmm. research. So uh, we're very lucky to have them as part of our team and for us to be part of their team in constructing uh, a mechanism that allows people that we can reach those people through research that they're doing at their home. Mm. So we're measuring the effectiveness of not only just the dosages that we're prescribing, but also the effects that they have from a behavioral standpoint. So Mm. Dr. Little's colleague, Dr. Mary Jung, she's one of the foremost leading world researchers in exercise behavior. And so we're trying to connect those two things together so that we can make a meaningful impact on not only people getting through 
this research study, but continuing this for the rest of their life and gleaning as much information as we can so that the next programs that we start putting together are actually making some meaningful change and and targeting the 80% of the people that don't exercise that really need it. Mm. Oh, mate, what a fantastic mission. Yeah. Yeah, well, I hope hope at any question we can kind of help with that, whether that's helping just with the brand building or if it's just getting the information out or helping you create content that we can we can put in there or whatever because i think it's fantastic mate and uh, you're one of the most qualified people i've met and had on the show in terms of understanding the brain and how it can connect and the behavior how it connects with the with the physiology so and um mate i just really appreciate your time what, what what's next for you coming up here i don't have any real big things happening from a coaching standpoint uh, i've got a couple athletes that i'm working with right now I'm trying to get them uh, recovered from uh, injury and getting back onto the circuit. And mm-hmm. uh, the rest is just uh, building out a lot of the stuff that we're doing with seven movements and, and kind of programming it all and organizing it and delivering it into uh, the formats that we're looking for from that. So awesome. other than that, I'm hanging out in my garage, training some young, uh, young athletes and get to hang out in my short pants all day long and <laughs> sweat my ass off in my garage. <laughs> a, I know Florida here does get a little yeah. warm at times. <laughs> I went to do a um, Thanksgiving 5K as it, everybody in the team said, yeah, okay, we'll do a virtual 5K. And they're all up in Boston running in sort of 20 degrees Fahrenheit or minus, what is that, minus three or four Celsius. And uh, I was down here in 80 degrees and unbelievable humidity. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I almost died. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I wouldn't change it, especially with having a two and a four-year-old who don't like to wear clothes. It, it is really a great part of the world to be in. Um, but, mate, i got to tell you, I just really appreciate you coming on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I feel like you and I share a lot of commonalities with, with the way we approach movement and, and the brain and how it all connects. So I really just appreciate you coming on and sharing your journey and all your knowledge, mate. It's been wonderful. Oh, thanks so much. And well, let's do the next time we get together, let's do it in person. Let's do it in a, person. With a, with a Belgian beer. Oh, with a Belgian, yes. Everybody understand the pre-show, we were talking all about our favorite Belgian beers and, <laughs> yeah. and how we're trying to moderate the dosage. <laughs> I love it, mate. Well, I appreciate you coming on again. So thank you. And um, thanks everybody for listening um, and sharing the show and all your feedback. I truly appreciate it. And you can find the show notes and um, timestamps and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.